think I might need a bigger pulpit. There's more and more stuff coming up with me every Sunday. This morning we continue our study of 2 Corinthians. And this morning we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. That's found on page 965 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along with me there. And it will also be projected behind me on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Oh Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to preach this passage to your people. Lord, it is truly an honor any time that we sit before your word and we have the opportunity to hear it proclaimed. But oh Lord, what a, what a glorious reminder from your word of your great work in salvation. What a, what a glorious calling to your church to be faithful and true to the gospel. And Lord, I pray that the fruit of our time together in your word today would not only increase our joy in you and our confidence in you and your word, but Lord, that you would use it to further conform us to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that our lives would truly be the aroma of Jesus to those that we come in contact with, both believers and unbelievers alike. In short, Lord, I am praying for eternal fruit according to the work of your Spirit in the lives of your people. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is one of those passages of Scripture that I don't know if I would ever feel capable of fully giving it the glory that it deserves. But please accept this humble offering as an act of love for you. Now as we get started, I, I want to begin a little bit silly in what I'm about to say about social media, but lead into something very, very serious. Now, You've only had to be here a, a few Sundays to, 
to, to, to recognize that although I use social media, I don't have a lot of hope for social media as it relates to how it is used by the majority of people today. That's not to say there aren't those out there who are, are faithful for using it for good, even for redemptive purposes. But for me personally, I've, I have found myself over the past few years becoming more of a, uh, an observer than a participant. Probably because I don't trust myself. But one thing that I've really grown to love about social media lately has been cute animal videos and cute baby videos. I will scroll through and let me tell you that I skim most of what you post unless it's one of those videos and then I stop and watch. Now that's not always true, like the baby announcements and the cute stories about your families and the pictures of your families, I love, I stop, I, I rejoice in those things. Your political commentary, I don't read. But those videos, they captivate me. It's embarrassing how much time I will stop and, and invest in watching some of those things. But, but something that has really stood out to me lately, and, and I've only seen a few of them, but they are very powerful. They are videos of children and adults who are deaf, who through the, I don't want to use the word miracle, but through the advancement of technology are given hearing aids that allow them to hear for the very first time. And I tell you what, I could watch videos of babies' faces lighting up at the sound of their parents' voices, hearing them for the first time for hours. I, I could watch adults hearing their spouse's voice for the first time and breaking into tears of joy over and over again for hours. It's beautiful. It's true joy it's it, it, it's revelation and more than that it's a beautiful illustration of what happens in the heart of someone who turns to faith in Christ when they experience salvation for the first time it's a very similar joy that happens when someone's eyes are open to the truth of the gospel. That, that's really why I love it. If I could operate this iPad in a way where I could throw one of those videos up there and then compare it with a video of someone responding in faith to the gospel for the first time, you, you'll see the similar thing taking place. Tears of joy, a, a burden lifted, understanding taking place for the first time. It's beautiful. And it's exactly what we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now, here we are in a, in a section of 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul is still defending and defining his ministry for the church at Corinth where his authority had been challenged and his faithfulness brought into question. But here 
In these moments, Paul takes a moment to define the ministry, his ministry, and I would say by extension, our ministry as the church of Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel faithfully. This morning we're going to consider Paul's ministry and and our ministry under the context of of three major themes. The the first is a clean ministry. Secondly, we're going to see the the Apostle Paul describe a contested ministry. And finally, we're going to see how God is at work in creating a ministry of conquest. And it is my prayer for you, unbeliever, that today the light comes on in your heart and mind and you respond in faith to the gospel. It is my prayer for you, Christian, in, in, in the pew, that, that, that whether it be in the, in the context of, of ministries and outreach that take place officially here at New Hope, or, or in the context of your relationships with family and coworker and neighbor, that your confidence in the gospel grows, that your confidence in, in the work of God and salvation is even further established, and your boldness grows as you proclaim the gospel. Because proclaiming the gospel, evangelism, witnessing, call it what you want, is more than simply a job for for the guy that you pay to be your pastor or the men that you call to serve as your elders or even the the teachers that are raised up to, to serve in various capacities in the church The witness of the gospel is our calling as the body of Christ. So as Paul defines and and defends his ministry, let's look at verses 1 and 2 and and consider what it means to have a clean ministry. Verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, Paul is referencing a ministry, and he defines that ministry in in chapter 3. We looked at this last week, but I just want to read two verses from, from that, that, that wrap up chapter 3 that reminds us what Paul, where Paul is coming from as he talks about this ministry. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Back up a, just a couple of verses there in your Bibles. The Apostle Paul writes, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the image of the Lord, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now Paul has just spent a significant portion of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 contrasting the, the ministry of he and the other apostles of proclaiming the gospel and strengthening the church with the ministry of Moses. The ministry of Moses was Moses received the law of God, right? 
And, and Paul makes it clear that that ministry, that receiving of the law and transmitting of the law to the people was really a ministry of, the law, of death, of condemnation. Because the law does what? It reveals where we transgress, where we break the law, right? That's, that's what the law does. And, and Paul says, listen, that ministry was glorious, but God has called us to a, a greater ministry, a ministry of life, a ministry that's empowered by the Spirit of God. And it's the ministry of proclaiming salvation through the Messiah, Jesus, the Son of God. This is the ministry that he's referring to here in chapter 4. This more glorious ministry where the ministry of the law, the, the, the glory of the law, the old covenant was a fading glory. It was a good thing. It reveals the character of God. It reveals what is good for us and what is bad for us. But it could never, ever, no, never save. Cannot make us righteous in the way that God requires contrast that with the new covenant the gospel there's a glory that will never end because the one who we glory in is eternal Jesus Christ our Lord we will celebrate what he has done for us forever so if you grow weary of singing gospely songs on Sunday morning, brothers and sisters, you better get used to it. Paul established in chapter 3 that, that, that his ministry, the ministry of he and the other apostles, was, was greater than Moses' ministry. It was a transforming ministry because it was empowered by the Spirit. And it was also, we see in uh, verses 5 and 6 in chapter 3 that it was a God-ordained ministry. It's not something that Paul just drummed up on his own. And, and he goes there again here in chapter 4. We see here in verse 1 that this ministry of the gospel was the result of God's mercy towards Paul and the churches that he served. Paul didn't see himself as worthy, but he understood that his salvation and, and even in his calling to, to minister to the church were all acts of God's undeserved kindness. And that is true for us as well, brothers and sisters. Every good thing we have from God is undeserved. And that leads us to praise God, does it not? We do not deserve to have our sins forgiven. We do not deserve to have the promise of eternal life. But through Christ, God lavishes that on us. Praise God. Paul says this is all a mercy. And as a result, we don't lose heart. Why? Because God is merciful. So even as he faced distressing circumstances like those in Corinth, remember, these people were questioning, questioning his fitness for ministry. Let me tell you, I know Paul was like the man, but Paul was also a man. So I imagine that things like this tempted him to despair. You've all been there. Someone has questioned your fitness or your capability for something. 
or, or the work that you do. And it is hard not to take it personally, right? It's hard for me. This temptation to despair was real and, and present given all that, that happened in, in all the churches that Paul served. Not, not just the church in Corinth. I mean, we, we've studied a lot of the New Testament in the past nine and a half years, brothers and sisters. A lot. I, I counted up the books. I can't recall off the top of my head, but we, we're over three quarters of the way through it. So we know a lot about what the Apostle Paul dealt with, right? It had to weigh on him. But he continued to, remembered the, to remember the mercy of God. And that kept him from despair. Paul says we, we don't lose heart. Literally, that means to, to behave like a coward. Paul says, I ain't scared. In spite of all that we are facing, we will not back down. In spite of false teachers seeking to lead you astray, we will not back down. In spite of people who are causing divisions in the context of the church, we will not back down. But we will call you to live as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Paul had to be bold. He was resolved to it because he understood that the health of the church depended upon it. So these are strong words from Paul. And he doesn't stop there. But brothers and sisters, before I go further with the Apostle Paul, I want to remind you of something that we must understand and cling to as followers of Christ. That it's confidence in God and His Word that will enable us to stay strong when faced with opposition. It's not your ability to talk your way out of something or your ability to reason or debate that's going to sustain you. It's going to be how strong your faith in God is and your confidence in His Word. And those are things that grow, brothers and sisters. We, we don't have a, a set level of confidence in God's word or our, our faith in the Lord when we come to, to Christ. No, that is something that we grow in and as we see God's faithfulness and as we experience God's sustaining grace through all that we experience in life, our faith grows as we see the world falling more and more in line with what God has already said it's going to be like. Our confidence in God's word grows So grow, brothers and sisters. Grow. This is something that we partner with the Spirit of God in as we subject ourselves to His Word. We grow. The Spirit brings the growth, but we have to cultivate that growth. So grow, new hope. Grow in your confidence in God and His Word. Paul says not, not only... What was he and his fellow workers confident in God? They were also pure in their ministry to the church. Now remember, Paul is defending himself here. He goes on to say, listen, we, we have renounced 
disgraceful, underhanded ways. Literally, that means the things that are shameful, that are hidden. So he said, listen, everything that, that, that we might try to do or, or might be tempted to, you, to do or probably more specifically what the false teachers are doing, these are things that we have renounced. False teachers were not above using manipulation and coercion to try to get the church to follow their teaching. Paul says, listen, we have none of that. We refuse to practice cunning, literally that is trickery, or, or, or to tamper with God's word, that means to falsify. None of that. Paul's declaration to the church is we've given you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, these verses are a sobering reminder that the gospel is not ours to change, but it is ours to faithfully proclaim. People will be offended to be told that they are sinners, but they need to know it. Brothers and sisters, hating the diagnosis does not make it invalid. Watering down the diagnosis is of no benefit to the person who is ill. God's love is not seen as glorious to us until we understand the scope of it. Undeserved love from God poured out on guilty, judgment-deserving people poured out through the faithfulness of Christ. How great is our God, brothers and sisters. The ministry and the message of the gospel don't need to be tampered with to make them more acceptable in the eyes of the world. In fact, we need to be sure that we are doing as little as possible to confuse people concerning the gospel. And I will say this, that this has been the great sin of the evangelical church over the past 30 plus years, is this temptation to, to water down the message. You can't call sin, sin, people won't come through your doors. Now listen, I am not talking about approaches to evangelism changing. We do evangelism differently in different contexts, do we not? You, you don't stand up when you're having friends over the dinner to share the gospel with them and pull out your Bible and thunder one out like I'm doing right now, right? No, you, you sit and you have a, a conversation or, or, or it might be something like in the context of Marietta Day where we're seeking to meet our neighbors and we want to cultivate relationships that will enable us to, to share the gospel or, or even themed events that take place. All of that is, is fine if we are not watering down the message. So, so don't conflate the two. We are strategic, but we must never hide the whole truth of the gospel from anyone. To, to engage in tactics that are manipulative and, and inconsistent with the word of God 
is a sin, brothers and sisters. It's a sin against God, and it's also a sin against those whom we're seeking to see respond to the gospel. Think about it in those terms. We sin against others when we pervert the gospel because we are throwing up a roadblock to their salvation. Our calling, brothers and sisters, as the church is to be faithful to speak the truth clearly and in love to those who we are seeking to serve. Truth and love, brothers and sisters, let that be the banner over our lives here at New Hope. Paul says, listen, I have preached the gospel clearly and had a clear conscience. We saw this earlier before God and man, and then he appeals to the church itself. He says, listen, witness against me as to whether or not I have been faithful to you. That's what he says. We would commend ourselves to everyone's consciences. Before God, before God, Corinth, can you say that I have not served you faithfully with the gospel? And they could not. And it must be our goal, brothers and sisters, to, to not adulterate or dilute the truth of God's word. We cannot dilute the gospel, but we must proclaim it clearly. I love this quote from John MacArthur. It says, our responsibility is simply to make our witness faithful. It is God's responsibility to make it effective. We will see as we move forward that we can save no one. It truly is the work of God. So will our ministry, like the Apostle Paul's, our ministries, be clean ministries? Will they be marked by sincerity of conscience and fidelity to the truth of God's word? Might I submit to you that they must be. They must be if we are to be faithful Paul's ministry was not only a clean ministry. We see in verses 3 and 4 that it was also a contested ministry. Paul continues, and even if our gospel is veiled, now remember chapter 3 talked a lot about the veil that Moses put over his face when he came down from receiving the, the Ten Commandments to hide God's glory from the people and then he transitioned into the veil that lie, lay over the hearts of the people of Israel keeping them from understanding who the Messiah was, that Jesus is, is the way of salvation. So Paul continues that theme here in chapter 4. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we proclaim the gospel, we don't dilute the gospel. What a, what about those who don't respond in faith to the gospel? And Paul addresses that issue here in verses 3 and 4. And he makes it clear in these verses that the problem is not with the message, but with the hearer who does not comprehend the magnitude of the message. Paul says they're, they're blinded to the truth as it relates to their need for Christ. Now understand something. Paul's not saying... When, when we share the gospel with someone who does not respond, that we're speaking a foreign language. They understand the words that we are saying. 
but their blindness relates into their recognizing that this is the truth. That Jesus truly is the only way to be reconciled to God. They're blind to that truth as it relates to them. They're blinded also by sin. They're blinded by unbelief. And we see in verse 3, by the work of Satan. Think back to the illustration of, of the deaf, deaf hearing for the very first time. It took someone acting upon them, did it not? Through the advent of the hearing aids for them to be able to hear for the first time. The same is true with the lost. Unless God opens their eyes to the truth, then they're not going to respond in faith to that truth. Why? Because there's a spiritual battle that is taking place when the gospel is proclaimed. We are opposed in that proclamation of the truth. Our adversaries are the systems of the world, the sinfulness of man, and the devil himself. That's Ephesians 2, verses 2 and 3. Let me read that to you. Paul is, is writing about the work of God in, in redeeming the Ephesians. And he begins in verse 1. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, systems of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, God of this world in, in, in 2 Corinthians, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind why don't people respond on their own to the gospel because they are drowning in a system of this world that is hostile to God because they are under the influence of the one who hates God and because they love their sin more than they recognize their need to accept the love of God. This is a, a very bleak picture, is it not? And it should serve to remind us that changing the message saves no one. We must depend on the work of God. This is a, a daunting task, an impossible task, were it not for the work of God in our proclamation of the gospel. Because you want to know something? If God had not opened your eyes, you would still be in your sins. The battle is spiritual in nature and it is not one that we can resolve in the flesh. This should increase our prayers for those that do not know the Lord. And we should pray just as Paul writes in verses 5 and 6 that God would turn the light on in their hearts and minds. That they would see Christ in his glory and they would respond in faith to what he has done. But before we get there, I want to read a lengthy quote from Spurgeon as it relates to spiritual blindness, which is what Paul has described here. 
in verses 3 and 4. Spurgeon writes, Remember that this blindness to spiritual things is quite consistent with much sharpness as to natural things. So what he's saying is, you can be spiritually blind and worldly brilliant. It happens all the time. A man might be a very keen politician. He might be a first-rate man of business. He may be an eminent scientist, a profound thinker, and yet he may be blinded as to spiritual truths. How often is it true Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. As an old writer says, poor ignorant men often find the door to heaven and enter in while the learned are looking for the latch. What a way with words. Yes, a man may have clear eyes for worldly things. He may be very keen as to his insight into the problems of life. And yet the God of this world may have blinded his eyes. What a sobering statement, is it not? This is not about brilliance and wisdom as it relates to what the world values. There are plenty of people in the world outside the faith who are way, way smarter than I am. Which makes you say, yeah, well, duh. It's not even hard to be. Well, I agree. But the difference is for you and I, our eyes have been opened and we have received a greater wisdom that can only come through Christ our Lord. So you may be sitting here this morning, non-believer, and you have a pretty high view of your intellect. And, And maybe you are smart. Let me just confess that you haven't accomplished anything by being smarter than me. But I want to warn you not to rest in an intellect that even God may have gifted you with. Because if that intellect is keeping you from responding in faith to the gospel, you are blind. You, you, you are blind and you are deaf. And you need God to open your eyes. And I would encourage you even now, in your heart, as you are listening to me, preach this message, pray, plead with God. If you even have the smallest bit of doubt that he would open your eyes. Because no matter how foolish you think us Christians may be, we're on to something. And it's something you desperately need. This passage would be depressing if it stopped at verse 4. But praise God for 5 and 6. Paul goes on to say, this is a ministry of conquest. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, this morning I pulled a fast one on Mike with the worship leading and him being a gracious and us having a talented worship team made something possible. If you receive or or actually follow through on the emails that you receive each week with the songs that we're going to sing, 
you've got, you got a curveball coming as we close. As I was reflecting on this passage this morning, the old hymn, And Can It Be, came to mind. And literally, I could have read what one of the four main verses at every part of this message. But we're going to focus just on verses 3 and 4 for the sake of time. Right now, verse 3 of And Can It Be, because it relates perfectly to these verses 5 and 6. Charles Wesley, the writer of this hymn, writes, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Quickening means it gives life. God gave him life. I woke! The dungeon flamed with light. My, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and went forth and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's a beautiful picture of, uh, of the transition from, from verses 3 and 4 to 5 and 6 in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I was dead in my sin. I was imprisoned. But you opened my eyes. You gave me light. And life. I woke up. The chains fell off. My heart was free. That's beautiful. That's powerful. That's gospely, if you will. But it is a perfect picture of God at work opening the eyes of unbelievers and giving life. While the enemy may contest our gospel efforts, we can be assured that God is at work opening eyes to the truth of the gospel. These two verses are, contain one of the most vivid and powerful descriptions of the work of God in salvation anywhere in the Bible. We see in verse 5 that the gospel is a message centered on Jesus. Unlike the false teachers, Paul says, listen, we preach Jesus, not ourselves. We're just your servants. We want you to know him. Again, remember my warning about staying true to the message. The apostle Paul did. The Corinthians and the false teachers who had influenced them were consumed by their worship of man. Think back to our study of 1 Corinthians. What was one of the main problems in the church? Factions with people identifying themselves with different leaders. Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus. We don't need to be led. They were like the church in America today, they were idol worshipers when it came to people, worshipers of man. And we do it. We do it. Look, look at the bestseller list of Christian authors. It is a cult of personality. Their goal is not to get you closer to the Lord in most cases, but to give you some secret that's missing in your Christian life. The goal is to get your money. 
I am all for reading. I love our church library. I love my personal library. Reading is good. Christian reading is good. We should do it, but we should do it discerningly. We need to be driven by and encouraged by authors, writers, pastors, theologians who are helping us grow in our knowledge of the Almighty. Not selling us some secret prayer that was just discovered after 2,000 years of church history. Come on! And I've been there, guys. I have been there. I Go down the list of the 90s. Prayer of Jabez. I read it. 40 days of purpose. I, I, I went through it as a church against my will. All these things, if we are not regularly feeding and, and growing in God's Word, all of these things become sorry substitutes for something greater we are promised in Christ. Now again, there are things out there that can help us, but they are not designed to take the place of what should be most important in our lives as it relates to our spiritual diet. You need to read God's Word more than you need Tony Dungy's latest devotional. Great guy! Love him! Love his witness! But if he's replacing God's Word in your life, then I have a sense that even Tony would be unhappy with you. And that guy doesn't get unhappy about much. Our message, our ministry must be centered on the Word of God rather than the worship of man. Can we agree? <laughs> Faithful teachers are consumed by the glory of God and the work of Christ as it's revealed in His Word. But let me just tell you something. It's not just teachers. That slide is incomplete or that statement is incomplete. It's not just teachers, but all who share the gospel. We must be consumed by God's glory and the importance of the message of salvation that we have to share with those outside the faith. This must be our priority. Verse 6, we see that it is God who removes the veil from the hearts and minds of unbelievers leading to salvation. It's the same God who, who spoke light into darkness, referencing creation. <laughs> Spoken life into our hearts, light into our hearts. That we would see the, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It's beautiful. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We need to pray for those to whom we seek to minister, brothers and sisters. We need to pray that God would do this work in their lives. We need to be faithful to continue to proclaim this truth, brothers and sisters, to those who do not yet know him. We must not lose heart. 
when they don't seem to respond right away or they reject us, but to continue to, to lovingly be a gospel witness in their lives, asking God to bless our efforts for his glory and their good. God removes the veil, and he does this as the gospel is proclaimed to those in darkness. That should give confidence to our witnessing. It is a great relief to know that I cannot save anyone. I share the gospel every week. Every person who preaches up here shares the gospel at some point in their sermon every week because we understand that there are likely unbelievers present. And the effort is not to try to, 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 to poke someone or manipulate someone in the kingdom of God, but to remind them yet again that there is one way to the Father, and that is through the Son of God who gave his life as a ransom, paying the price that they owed for their salvation. And when God turns the lights on, they are blind no more. They see. And this results in the glory of God. I have to chuckle a little bit at the next quote. Not the quote itself, but who gave it, based on how people react to this name. But the quote is powerful. John Calvin. There's not a controversial name, isn't it? Since no man is excluded from calling upon God to the gate of, since no man is excluded from calling upon God, the gate of salvation is open to all. There is nothing else to hinder us from entering but our own unbelief. If you've yet to respond in faith to the gospel, it's not because you haven't heard the truth. It's because you don't believe. Pray, ask God to turn the lights on. So what about us? First, a word to unbelievers from Charles Spurgeon. This is Sir Spurgeon's appeal to the lost in his church when he was preaching on 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. He says, when you have confessed your blindness, do one more thing. Trust the Lord Jesus to open your blind eyes. Put yourself consciously, consciously into the presence of the divine Savior and say to him, I believe that thou art able to work this miracle of mercy. I believe that thou can make me see the truth and feel the truth. Oh, unbeliever, listen to these words. I believe that you can make me see you and trust you. Here are my eyes, Lord. I would receive my sight. I believe that you can give it. Give it to me now. Ah, perhaps while I speak these words, the, the flash of divine light is coming into some dark heart. Salvation does not take hours. It is one single instant that we pass from death into life. The moment that we believe in Jesus, we are saved. The moment that we look to him hanging on the cross, our iniquity, our sin is pardoned. God grant us that blessed look of faith this day, each one, for Jesus' sake. 
Amen. May I encourage the believers among us this morning. Keep proclaiming the gospel and do not lose heart. It does not matter that a family member has rejected you for the past 20 years at every turn. Keep looking for opportunities to remind them of what Christ has done. It does not matter that your boss thinks you are an idiot. Continue to be an example and look for opportunities to proclaim the gospel and trust God to do his work. Do not lose heart. Do not, as Paul writes, become cowardly in your faith. But recognize that, 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 that rejection and those things are, are all things that Jesus has already experienced for us. And I would also encourage you to prioritize the gospel in your relationships. Prioritize your spiritual walk in this world that's filled with destruction and sin and prioritize the gospel in our relationships, even with other believers. Remind them when they are weak of God's great love for them expressed through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Be faithful to to, to remind them that they are secure in him in their moments of weakness. And let us be wise and faithful as we live in this world that is hostile to what we believe. I close this morning with verse 4, which we're going to sing in just a moment of and can it be. Because this is the truth that waves over every believer's life in this room. So I want you to listen to these words, and then when we sing these words at the, at the end, I, I, I want you to, to blow the band away. <laughs> no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. He's my Lord and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own because of his faithfulness. This can be our approach when we stand before him in glory. No fear of condemnation. Jesus was condemned for us. It should have us walking on air today in our faith. Let us pray.